pray that you would just help us to to accept it, to understand it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Seated. My prayer is that you would would know and understand that, that nothing compares to His love. We are in the middle of a series on First Peter. We will be at the end of chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 22, if you want to turn there. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Linda has an outline. No, actually, there's not an outline in the book. There's a lot of blank space. Uh, but there will be some points up there on the overhead in just a moment. Um, we're in the middle of a, of a section in chapter 1 and the end of, I mean, the beginning of chapter 2 where um, a Peter, in a sense, is, is kind of giving us a to-do list, a, a bucket list, the things that, not just that you might want to do before you die, but um, Peter would say that are, are necessities for you to do as you live as a believer in Christ, as you live with one another in community. And Peter would say, not only are these things that would be fun to do or exciting or you should check off your list, but these are necessities for you to do. And we've, uh, we've given a summary statement uh, that all of First Peter, I'm going to keep showing you this over the next several weeks and we, maybe we can commit it to memory, this, what this book is about. Um, Peter's writing to a, a group of believers, remember, who are, who are scattered, they're exiles, they're not where they belong, they wish they were somewhere else, they're uncomfortable. And he's writing to them, and based on what God has done, he's telling them how they should live, where they are, where they don't belong, when they're facing difficulties. And that's the, that's the gist of this book. We're going to summarize in a nutshell, that's what it is, and what we're doing is fleshing out that how to live part. And over the last few weeks, we've talked about three different commands that he has, has given us. We're going to talk about um, one more today and then one more next week. But if we, we back up, he began talking about, and he said that God is to be blessed. If you didn't get that, you'll see that summary again over the course of several weeks. Get a little bit now, you can write it down. But God is to be blessed, and the reason He's to be blessed is because we have been born again. And He talks about this wonderful salvation that we have that really has three time components to it. Our salvation is worth something because it's secure in the future. That future idea of really is it, it's worth something because it's secure in the future. Um, in the present, it's, it's worth rejoicing in despite the trials that we face. We talked about that beginning um, in verse 6. In the past, it was worth sacrificing for. That throughout the history of Israel, people, will, people were willing to sacrifice their own lives, their own comfort, their own security, their own health their own choices, their own ways, their own lifestyle, so that you and I might hear the gospel one day. So past, present, and future, our salvation has value to us. 
And then he begins talking about our response, those three things we talked about in the last two weeks that we'll talk about another one today, another one next week. Our response to that is that we should be holy like God is holy. And because that's this almost impossibly high, or it is an impossibly high bar, I haven't met anybody yet who's done that consistently more than a few minutes, much less a few days. We're stained with this world. Because we're called to be holy, he says, set your hope completely on grace. I mean, anybody in here set your hope on a billion dollars with the NCAA tournament? Anybody in here fill that out and turn that in? You wanted to. Yeah. And, and that lasted for everybody about how long? Right? When did everybody's hopes get dashed? Uh, the majority of people, about 98% within the first couple of hours of the tournament, uh, and by the end of day two, uh, none of those brackets that were turned in for the billion dollars were correct, and there was only one that was turned in anywhere else that was correct. And my guess is by the end of last night, that one was done too. But I haven't heard. Things like that that we set our hope on. The next job, the next relationship, all these things that we set our hope on. Peter says, no, that's not going to cut it because the requirement is holiness, perfection. And so your hope needs to be completely on grace. And then last week we talked about how Peter says that we should live in the fear of the Lord. And we, we talked about what that meant and we defined that very, very carefully. I would encourage you if you're not here to go back and listen to that. Sometimes we hear a fear of the Lord and we, we think differently than what Peter's talking about. And so that brings us to this morning. Brings us to our, our fourth response to what God has done for us. So beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, we read these words. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the Word of the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we ask that You would open our ears and open our hearts and our minds. But ultimately, God, we ask that You would move our wills to be obedient and to respond to You in praise and adoration and thanksgiving. We ask these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Those first three commands... Set your hope completely on grace. Be holy. Live in the fear of the Lord. All of those are, are God-oriented. Even though they affect what we do here, they're all God-oriented commands. They're all either looking to Him for something, but they all are focused on Him, even though they may affect what I do today and tomorrow and next week. But now Peter shifts his attention because he realizes that we're saying, yeah, but, but what about all these people that you've placed around me. What do I do with them? And he says very clearly, love one another earnestly. That's the command. Look around. Right? Take, take some time and, and look around. Some of you are looking at me still. Look around. This room, 
right? These are the people that he's talking about when he says, love one another earnestly. He's writing two churches and he's talking to believers and he's talking about the people that are, that are sitting next to them as they're reading this letter for the first time. And that doesn't mean, and we know from lots of places in Scripture, that we're not to love other people, including our enemies. But Peter's talking specifically about the people that we call brothers and sisters in Christ. We love them earnestly. Uh, that word earnestly, it, it's the same word that is used when it talks about how Jesus was praying in the garden before He was arrested. It's the same word that's used when the church was praying for Peter after he was arrested. There is a, a deep longing in it, but it's also a word that carries a connotation of perseverance. It's not just this one-time, heartfelt, I've got tears in my eyes, prayer, okay, I... I mustered up enough emotion, so we'll call that earnest. It's I'm willing to do this however long it takes. Those people that were gathered and praying for Peter were willing to do that however long it took. There's a, it's a, a word that implies a commitment. But, and Peter is calling us to love one another with a commitment, not just an emotion, not just a smile and a how are you doing. That there's this deep, abiding movement of me towards you that's, that's way beyond just a feeling or an emotion. And I want to ask the question, am I really supposed to love these people that way? I mean, we, we looked around, right? Look around. You may think this about me, but but some of you, I'm not. Some of you are sort of crazy, right? Some of you are odd, right? Some of you are do weird things. Some of you, I don't have any. I don't have much in common with. Some of us don't even like the same music. How am I supposed to love you earnestly, committed to you? And you know what's even worse than that? The longer we spend time together. We're going to hurt each other. I'm going to say something that offends you or you're going to say something that offends me. I'm going to do something stupid or you're going to do something stupid. As time goes on and we spend time together, it's not necessarily that that loving commitment that Peter calls us to is going to get any easier. In fact, I can almost guarantee you it's going to get harder. Because it, it calls me to be involved in your life even when you or I do those things that drive each other up the wall. Whether it's something as simple as an annoying habit or something as difficult and painful as a damaging sin. And Peter says, love one another earnestly. See, time... And proximity wears away the pretense. When we first meet each other, it's easy to love you because, you know, you don't know me and I don't know you. But time and proximity wear away the pretense and reveal whether we really do love each other or not. After all that time, am I still committed to you? 
That's sort of the way marriage works as well, right? You, you spend time together, lots of time together in close quarters, and over time you decide, I've got to decide, do I, do I love this person? Better question, am I going to love this person? Because for those of you that are married, you know your spouse is going to get on your nerves. Your spouse is a sinful human being. Amen, right? <laughs> or no comment. Some of you are honest, some of you are not. We're sinful people. And we've got to make a decision. Despite the fact that that other person is sinful and is not the person that I want them to be 100% of the time, am I going to love them? And Peter says, that's the way you treat each other in the church. Because time and proximity wears away the pretense. We learn about each other. We learn that we're not all that we were cracked up to be when we first met. How do I do that? And Peter explains to us how we do that with several phrases. Again, we're going to take them one at a time. So that's kind of the the middle of that passage is is the command. Back up to the beginning to verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So one phrase at a time. Having purified your souls. The way that we love each other is to purify our souls. What he's not talking about is salvation. He's dealt with that. Yes, that's a basis for what we do. But this word purify is not the same word that's used when God purifies or sanctifies someone. This word purifies every single instance in the New Testament and every single instance in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used for someone purifying themselves the majority of time when they're getting ready to meet God. Usually with water, taking a bath, washing your clothes. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just get a glass of water and chug it down and say, ah, pure soul, right? (laughs) That'd be nice. I don't think it's an accident that Peter chooses this word when he's talking about how we're to love each other when it's a word that's mainly used when we get ready to meet with God. We'll come back to that a little bit later. So if it's not with water, if I can't, I mean, I, I can't get water on my soul, so how do we do it? Well, he tells us by obedience to the truth. You see, what obedience does is it sort of acts like a filter. I go through life and, and I come upon a situation and I can choose to obey the truth or not obey the truth. I can choose to follow God or not follow God. Right? And, and when I obey, it sort of acts like a filter. It keeps all this gunk off my soul. See, sometimes we think of obedience as just this thing that, that happens in the moment. Right? I come to a decision and I go, I can do something right or wrong, but obedience has a longer effect than that. It actually purifies our soul. If you've got gunk built up because you haven't been obedient, and then you decide, you know what, I, I want to follow God. I'm going to repent and start obeying. It has a purifying effect. It has a cleansing effect on our souls. 
And when we obey, it keeps all that gunk out of our souls. See, part, some of us have this... We have, obedience has a, a negative connotation. And for some of us, it has a lot of baggage from former churches, things like fear and control and coercion and threats. And so obedience kind of... It doesn't sound right, but what Peter says is it's good for us. It cleanses us. And so my encouragement to you, if, if you hear that word and you go, I don't like that word, is, is to redeem the definition. Because obedience is good for you. Begin thinking of that terms, that term in terms of purity, in terms of love, what it leads to, which we'll get to in a second. In terms of it's healthy. It's good for me. The creator of the universe made you and know how you function. And so wouldn't you think he would know the right thing for you to do at the right time? Most of that is fairly clear from this book. Every once in a while we get in situations to go, what should I do? But seriously, the vast majority of times when we make poor choices, we know right from wrong. We know the right thing to do. So what do we purify ourselves for? This is what's interesting. See, we, we, we obey that it, and that purifies us not for ourselves. He says, for a sincere brotherly love. And that really should make sense to us. The gospel is always other-focused. We read that the prophets did what they did for us, not for themselves. We talked about that those, the, the people of, that lived by faith in the Old Testament that didn't get what they were promised, did that for us. The gospel's always other-focused. And so it should make perfect sense that we obey not for ourselves, but for the ability to love other people well. And I, I think there's two ideas that are going on when he, when he says that. Number one, my actions, what I do, are going to reflect on the people that I associate with. If I behave poorly, I give my God a bad name. And since you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, carry that same name, I necessarily paint you in an ugly picture as well. How much of the world doesn't like Christianity because of the way Christians have behaved throughout the centuries? Right? Their poor choices, their disobedience to the truth has painted you and I in an ugly light. And so the reason that obedience purifies my soul and the reason that I do that for loving you is because when I am obedient... When I am doing the right thing, I don't defame your name. I don't paint you in a bad light. I don't give you, ultimately, God, but I don't give God or you a bad reputation. But I don't think that's the main thing. I think there's a, there's a deeper issue going on. Because when I'm disobedient, in other words, when I sin... Really what I'm doing is I'm acting out of selfishness. Sin is selfishness. I want my way over your way. Or I want my way over God's way. And if I continue to do that, 
there's this selfish grime that builds up on my soul. And if that keeps building up, that becomes the habit of my life. And there's no way that I can love you if my soul is caked over with selfishness. It's just not possible. I'm in the habit of being selfish, so why would I somehow all of a sudden change and start loving you? But if I'm in the, if I'm in the habit of being selfless, of being obedient to the truth, if that's the habit and the pattern of my life, then when you come along, even if you drive me crazy, I can love you. Miss Jean doesn't drive me crazy. But she's close enough that I can look at her. But you know what? She will at some point in time. Because like everybody in this room, she's sinful and I'm sinful. And at some point in time, there's going to be a clash. As sweet as she is and as sweet as I am... <laughs> At some point in time, we're going to clash. And if I'm in the habit of walking in the truth, of being selfless, how much easier is it to be selfless with her and love her sacrificially? But if I'm in the habit of doing what I want to do when I, and, and she gets in my way or annoys me, then too bad. I'm going to react poorly. And then I'm going to offend her and it's just going to escalate and get worse and worse and worse. <coughs> What's beautiful about this passage though is Peter doesn't stop there because then we begin to think, even though he spent all these verses talking about the gospel and how wonderful it is, we might begin to think, oh, it's up to me. If I just cinch up the boots and tighten the belt and obey... I'll love everybody perfectly, right? No, he, he says, beginning in 23, love, or in 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart because, and he ties it back into the very beginning of the letter, because you have been born again. We're like, okay, Peter, we've done this already. We, we get it, right? But he adds something to it this time. You've been born again, not of imperishable seed, sorry, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Through the living and abiding Word of God. The reason that we can love, ultimately, is, is not necessarily that we've obeyed. The reason that we can love is you and I have been given a fresh start with something that doesn't Fade. It's imperishable. It doesn't go away. The only reason I can love you is He's taken who I am and He describes us as grass that fades and falls. And in that rebirth, He's rebirthed us with imperishable seed. It doesn't fade. It doesn't fall. And He describes that imperishable seed as the living and abiding Word of of God. And then at the end of 25, he says, and that word of God is the good news that was preached to you, this long chain of, of events. In other words, you can love because you've been affected by the gospel. And the gospel is always other-focused. 
it always is willing to sacrifice for someone else. That's what the gospel is. That Jesus Christ died on the cross according to the scriptures for your sins and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It's other focused. It's not only how we can love, but it's how we should love. Because see, everybody in this room, he paints the picture, everybody in this room is like grass. In all of your glory, all of your possessions, all of your position, all of your accomplishments, all of your awards, all of your achievements, all of your attaboys, anything that you've built from cities to legacies, that's like the flower of grass. It's all going to fall. It's all going to fade. When I live in Texas, there's places like that in the spring. Blue bonnets, just as a field of blue, as far as you can see. Glorious. And then by July, it often can look like that. The glory of, of who we think we are just goes away. And because we're frail, because everybody in this room, if God does not return before that, everyone in this room is going to die. We're going to become worm food. We're fragile. We're frail. And so we need, we long for in our vulnerability to be loved, to be cared for. We need that. We need the gospel to live through us, to love one another because we are like grass. And that gospel is not only how we can love because He's redeemed us. He's given us a heart that, that can long to love Him. We have the ability now to actually be obedient when beforehand we couldn't. But it's also why we should love. We love because He first loved us. And so my challenge to you this week, obviously, are, are, are we loving one another? But let's think beyond that for a moment. Because that's easy to say, well, yeah, you know, I'm nice and I'm generous and I'm, I smile and, and I care about the people that I interact with, on, that I meet with on Sunday morning. I want us to think beyond that for a moment. What are you not willing to give up for someone in this room? What if we said, would you do this for someone... And there's probably some things that that, that that blank is that would never cross your mind. I, I really want you to think this week. What would that look like? Think about your possessions. Think about your time. Think about your wants, your desires. What, do you, what, would, what would you say, nah, I wouldn't give up that for you. 
Now, I'm not saying that God always calls us to give up everything for a particular individual. But what are we holding loosely? With that phrase we talked about yesterday, we did some training with, and I appreciate Crystal talking about that. What do we, what do we hold tightly and what do we hold loosely? He may never ask you to give up something. But if he did, what's more important, that thing or that entity that's yours or a brother and sister in Christ? I want us to really think about that this week. Not just walk out of here and go, okay, that was nice. I love you. I get it. I'll smile next week. What am I willing to give up for someone? What do I hold on to so tightly that I'm not willing, that I'm not worth or someone else in this room is not worth that? God would say that everybody in this room is worth the precious blood of my son. Now, I don't think he'll, he'll ask us to, to sacrifice our blood for one another, but he might. But my guess is if you're anything like me, there's a lot of things before I would ever get there that I would start going, well, I don't know, Tim's worth that. And I would say that I loved him. But when push comes to shove, I don't know. I think that's a good exercise for us. What are we worth to each other? What are we worth to each other? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that's in it. And I pray that you would use it to speak to our hearts this week. I'd help us to get, open our eyes to get a, a, a glimpse of what you sacrificed for us. And then God, I ask very specifically that you would speak to each one. Is there an idol in my life, in our lives, that I'm not willing to let go for the sake of somebody else that you have, in this room, that you've called us to love? Through the power of your spirit, God, I pray that you would speak to us individually and collectively. Is there something that we collectively are not willing to give up for one another? And then, God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to change. And we ask these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing again, please? Mm -hmm.